ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If it had to, could Australia defend itself in a military conflict? You've probably been seeing lots in the news about upgrading our Navy, the threat of conflict in our region and a little defence pact called AUKUS. Announced suddenly in September 2021 by Scott Morrison, agreed to by Labor equally suddenly, but where was the big public debate? Well, maybe it's coming now, especially as we start looking at those costs. And with the very real prospect of a more isolationist America, have we tied ourselves into a risky deal that could leave us exposed, less safe rather than more? I'm Geraldine Doog. And I'm Hamish McDonald. Welcome to Global Run. Well, Hamish, um, lovely to be with you again, but I have to say that my whole week was poleaxed, and I wish I could think of a, a better word, actually, by the death of Alexei Navalny. It's, it's on so many levels, it simply stops you in your tracks, I think. Yeah, it certainly does. It personalises everything that is going on in Russia, I guess, for in a way that doesn't uh, happen for us often. Uh, and I suspect if you're listening to this, you will have been swamped by the news yourself, probably feeling some of those emotions, seeing Navalny's wife step up into mm. the public spotlight and saying, I'm going to carry this, this campaign, this struggle. But I think also what we're yet to see is how this impacts not just the internals of Russia, where there's an election coming up, but also a, a the United States... A quotes election. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but also a real election taking place in the United States and that ongoing struggle about funding for the Ukraine conflict. I think suddenly for so many of those Republicans that have been fighting against what Biden is trying to do in terms of providing more supplies to the Ukrainians, that argument that they're making starts to become a little more difficult. So we are going to get to that, we think, next week. Uh, but we'll just let the dust settle a little bit because there is still so much to learn about this. And as always, we try and find those layers that haven't quite yet been explored or, or explained. Yeah, well, indeed, it, the, the personalising of it is what I'm going to be looking at in terms of whether the Republicans do crack, because uh, certainly I think it's had a big impact in Europe. And that'll be something that we look at um, in uh, weeks and months to come. And look, thank you very much indeed, by the way, for the suggestions you are sending into us. Look, we really do appreciate it. And uh, we can really detect that you, like uh, us, that you're looking around at the various different challenges um, in the world. And so we're very appreciative and we will get to things bit by bit. What have you seen that you liked in the feedback this week? I haven't looked. Well, people also suggesting an episode charting the Australia-China relationship down through the years. Now, we haven't done that because there's been so much on that. We really try to wait until we think we've got something fresh to add to the discussion, which is what I think we're going to try to do today. So all of that is still to come. Yes. Yeah, so this week, a debate that in many ways Australia hasn't really had, but it's a big and important debate about our strategic future, AUKUS. Indeed. And um, Hugh White 
has written a big new essay on this. Um, he's been writing about these defence matters for many years. He's been a defence advisor to the Bob Hawke government. Uh, he was set up the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and his new article in Australian Foreign Affairs magazine has made headlines this week as a very strongly made argument with lots of granular detail against AUKUS. And so I guess just to set the scene for this conversation, uh, what happened when AUKUS was announced was a surprise, as we know, to the French. It really upset Emmanuel Macron because prior to that we were going to be buying uh, uh, diesel submarines from the French. Suddenly we weren't. The opposition, the then Labor opposition, was given very limited warning. Uh, they, though, decided that they would go along with this. And so there's been bipartisan agreement. And between... they did that probably because they were terrified of being wedged uh, on national security issues in the, in the election, which had to come a few months late, later. Uh, and to be fair to both the government then and the government now, uh, this announcement when it was made was lauded internationally. This was seen was a, as a very big moment, a significant step. Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, the security pact that would see Australia uh, receive and operate nuclear powered submarines. Uh, important to distinguish from that nuclear armed submarines. Mm. We won't have that. Uh, that mistake, I think, is still fairly regularly made. Uh, and there hasn't really been a great deal of discussion or even dissenting opinion offered here in Australia. Occasionally there well, is some. Well, Paul Keating <laughs> being one very, very obvious one. I mean, there's been a bit. Sam Rogovan from the Lowy Institute. From the Lowy Institute, Gareth Evans, they're all, well, actually Gareth is a little equivocal, but I mean, it's been at a level of people who love talking about this and know a lot about it. And I think the challenge is to get it beyond that, you know, so it doesn't look like a whole bunch of defence acquisition to conversation. It's really about the philosophy of how we defend ourselves. And what exactly we're trying to defend ourselves against. So I'm really interested to hear from Hugh White because he is an eminent voice on these matters. Not everyone agrees with him. In fact, I think it's fair to say a lot of people strongly disagree, both in the current government, the opposition, in the bureaucracy, in the Defence Department, in Canberra. There'll be many that disagree with what Hugh says. But I'm also interested to hear if Hugh's going to critique all of this and say AUKUS isn't the answer, nuclear-powered submarines is not the right answer for us, then what is? So uh, questions ab about what's wrong, but also maybe what the answers might be. Here's Hugh White. Hugh, welcome to Global Roaming. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it's nice to be with you both. Now, if it had to... Could Australia defend itself today? It seems an important question to put right at the top. Yeah, look, it's a really important question and one I think we haven't given enough attention to. Traditionally, Australians have believed that, you know, a very big continent, relatively small population, relatively small economy couldn't possibly defend ourselves. But I don't think that's right. I think what we've got to do is to think carefully about who we're talking about defending ourselves from and how we might go about it. And even against a major Asian power like China or India. I think when it comes to defending our own territory, we have enormous advantages, in particular, those vast maritime approaches which uh, surround our continent. And the technologies over, over recent years, and indeed stretching back 100 years, have favoured the defence over the offence at sea. And I think if Australia uses those uh, technologies uh, inventively, effectively, then I think we can defend ourselves, but we'd have to spend more than we're spending at the moment. But, but, right. Hugh, if I may, that's a slightly confusing answer to me because Jerry's question is today, could we? 
And based on so much of what is in the news, could you forgive us for thinking maybe we couldn't? Uh, very, very good refinement. Look, today against China, we couldn't. I think the fact is that Australia has wasted a lot of money and wasted a lot of time building capabilities that we don't need or that aren't really relevant. And that if, for example, China was to launch uh, an attempt to put a lodgement on Australian territory or attack Australian territory, and if we didn't have the support of the United States, I think we'd be very hard pressed. So there's another layer to this, though, which is the thinking that maybe it's not about defending an attack directly on Australia, that really what we might be talking about in the next decade or two is some kind of disruption in the South China Seas where uh, China threatens our trading routes, maybe tries to seize some territory, uh, something of that order. Could Australia uh, function, succeed in a context like that? Look, I think Australia could make a very modest contribution to a regional coalition in a in a contingency like a you know US-China war over Taiwan, but I'd make two cautions there. The first is that contribution would be extremely modest. And the second is I don't think that's a war the United States, with or without our help, would win. And so I think for Australia to focus on what we can do to support the United States in a war against China, rather than how we can develop our national capability to defend ourselves independently against a major Asian power, and China's not the only one on the horizon, uh, I think, you know, that's that's what we need to start doing. So, 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 sorry to jump in, Jerry. Are you saying that you don't think America would win in a conflict with China in the context you're talking about? Uh, absolutely. I, th I think it's now very clear that the, mil the overwhelming military preponderance that America enjoyed at sea in the Western Pacific against China or anybody else back in the 1990s and even the two, early 2000s has now been eroded. Because China has focused so strongly and so effectively on building precisely the kinds of forces it needs to prevent the United States projecting power by sea and air into the Western Pacific, into the South China Sea, into the waters around Taiwan, because the Chinese have focused so effectively on that, they could destroy an awful lot of American ships, destroy an awful lot of American aircraft, prevent America really effectively coming to Taiwan's aid. Now, just because the Americans don't win doesn't mean the Chinese win. Indeed, as we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, what actually counts as winning in wars between great powers is pretty complex. I think the real danger is if the US and China go to war over an issue like Taiwan, within quite a short period of time, both sides will have lost a huge amount of materiel suffered enormous casualties, neither side will be in a prospect to damage the other enough to force them to concede. And so they'll both look at ways to escalate. And that's where fears of nuclear war come in. Okay. So let, so we want to try to avoid that at all, yeah. at all costs. <laughs> yes. Um, and I and mean, it's a very important point. <laughs> to get back to your point about waste and uh, the philosophy we apply to our own defence and how we think it through in a longer term uh, strategy. So uh, it, with your argument about AUKUS being something we've got to rethink and certainly talk about, what is your key worry? I mean, clearly it involves wrong spending as far as you're concerned. Uh, yes, look, it does, Geraldine, and for two very important reasons. The first is I don't think we need nuclear-powered submarines. I do think we need submarines. I think submarines are a very important part of a defensive posture for Australia. But I think nuclear-powered submarines, though they have advantages, they're so much more expensive, 
They're so much more difficult to make. They're so much more difficult to operate. We'll end up with far fewer of them in our fleet and we'll have far fewer of our fleet at sea at any one time than we would have if we spent the equivalent sum of money on good quality conventional submarines. So I think we're just making a mistake going to the, going the nuclear route. The second reason I've got real reservations about AUKUS is that whether we need nuclear-powered submarines or not, I don't think we're going to get them. I think the plan that the government announced at this time last year for the acquisition, first of all, of some uh, United States um, Virginia-class submarines and then of the co-production with the United Kingdom of a, of a new class of submarine, I think the chances of that plan unfolding effectively is extremely low. And so I think what's going to happen is that sometime, and probably quite soon within the next few years, the whole thing will just come apart in our hands and we'll be back to square one trying to work out how to get some more conventional boats. Why? I mean, these are huge contracts with hundreds of billions of dollars at stake. Why wouldn't they deliver? Well, uh, let's let's separate the, the, the two partners because I think they have different interests. For the United States, the principal problem with them passing the three to five Virginia-class submarines, which uh, the present plan envisages as getting from the United States, the problem with that is the United States does not have enough Virginia-class submarines of its own. This is a major issue in the, in the U.S., the US has identified a requirement for something like 65 submarines. At the moment, they only have something in the low 40s and they're not producing nearly as many as they need. And I think really nobody in the US has got any confidence that they can do this. And even if they did, it would make no sense for the US to pass submarines, their very precious submarines to Australia, unless they were absolutely sure that in the event of war, a war with China, those submarines would be available to the United States. And I, I, I and think at the moment, be... you think that at the moment, the theory is they stay under our control, our sovereignty, don't they? That's, uh, that, that's exactly right. Of course, I don't, I don't think it's. I don't think sovereignty is the right way to think about this issue. Of course, Australia can make a sovereign decision, but what the United States will expect us to do is to absolutely commit that our sovereign decision will be to go to war alongside the United States with China with our submarines, if that's what happens. That's after all what the United States expects of its NATO allies. Mm. The question for us is. Is it sensible for Australia to commit itself to go to war with the United States against China, a war we have no reason to believe the United States can win, in order to acquire submarines that we don't need? And what about the UK? So the, what Look, about the, the, the UK problem is a different problem. The United Kingdom, I'm sure, would love to sell us submarines because they'd like the money, not to put too fine a point on it. This is a real jobs boon for the United Kingdom, even though the submarines are meant to be built in Australia. The problem is the United Kingdom's own submarine industry and submarine capability is extremely fragile. And the next few decades are going to be very difficult ones because they are themselves in the process of trying to replace their ballistic missile firing submarines, which are also nuclear powered. And at the same time, they're going to be trying to design and develop and build the first of the AUKUS class submarines. The chances of that slipping and slipping very badly and pushing the del delivery of the Australian submarines from the 2040s into the 2050s and beyond are very high. Hey, Hugh, one of the things that Jerry and I have been discussing uh, this week is that there really hasn't been much of a debate about AUKUS and whether it is the right thing for Australia. And here you are saying, well, it might be a bit of a dud. So we thought maybe it's worth just getting some facts about it, because I think they're not well known. And I wonder if you could give me really brief, concise answers on this, because yep. there's so much detail. We just want to distill it a bit. Um, what does AUKUS cost in the long run? Nobody knows, but the government's figure is $368 billion. Are the contracts signed? 
No, no contract have yet been signed. Do we know how this would actually be delivered? No, we don't. What we know is that the, the plan is that the United States will sell us between three and five Virginia-class submarines in the 2030s and that from the late 2030s or early 2040s, we will build in Australia, that's the plan, up to five or six AUKUS-class submarines in South Australia. That And the AUKUS-class submarine is a, is a co-design between Britain and Australia. Hasn't this be been designed yet, This it? is what Alexander Downer calls a fairy tale. And <laughs> That's exactly right. It hasn't been designed yet. And and for the reasons we were uh, discussing earlier, the, the, the chances of that all working to that timetable are very low. And there's this sort of ecosystem that's meant to exist around AUKUS, which isn't just the submarines. What does that entail? Well, there's been a lot of talk that there's more to AUKUS than submarines. There's there's talk about um, collaboration on what people call a second pillar, which is other exotic uh, technologies and their applications to strategic purposes like uh, I've read cyber hi- and hypersonic so on. missiles, hypersonics, kind of thing. all of that sort of stuff. I'm I'm very sceptical about that. To the extent that we can cooperate with the US and the UK on those things, we could have done that without buying nuclear powered submarines. Uh, so I think I think that's a bit off to one side. There's also talk about deeper integration of our defence industries across a range of other weapon systems. Again, I don't think we needed to buy nuclear-powered submarines to do that. And most fundamentally, there's talk that AUKUS is not just about the kinds of, you know, equipment and technologies, but that it reflects a, a, a deeper, closer, you know, stronger strategic commitment uh, by the US and the UK to Australia's security. Now, I think that's just wrong. The United Kingdom has no commitment to Australia's security. Well, now, Hugh, it's interesting because you've been saying this for a while. I have. Yes, you have. And you, you clearly want to persuade Australians, all of us, to think again about what is wise for us, for our national interest. Now, how are you going to make this argument? Like, what do you propose, therefore, we do which is clearly very different to that which struck, you know, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison when he he thought it was the best decision he'd made in his entire uh, stewardship of Australia. At the moment, I think Australia, a lot of Australians, including Australian governments, are proceeding on the assumption that Australia, in supporting the United States, can deter China from its bid to displace the United States as the leading power in East Asia. I think that is too optimistic. I think China is too strong and the costs of that would be too high. So I think we have to resign ourselves to the fact that we're going to live in an East Asia in which China is much more influential and the United States is much less influential. And the challenge is how do we make our way, including making ourselves secure, in that very different Asia? We have to, amongst other things, on the military side, build forces that can raise the costs and risks to a great power like China of projecting power against Australia to the point where the Chinese think it's not worth their while. And I think that's something we can do, but only if we're really clever about the way we do it. And I don't think buying nuclear-powered submarines counts as clever. So I guess that's where we both wanted to get to in this conversation, because there's a risk, I reckon, of this conversation sounding a bit defeatist in a very complex era, and I suspect very few people have an appetite for that. What would you do? What would you buy? How would you make Australia an unattractive target? I'd focus overwhelmingly on on making it as difficult as possible for any country to project power by sea and air towards Australia. And what that means is you need to build forces which can find and sink an adversary's ships and find and sink uh, shoot down an adversary's aircraft. Now, that's not that hard to do. We have a lot of geography on our side. We have very long air and maritime approaches. And so what Australia should be doing is building forces which 
uh, are optimised for detecting forces as they approach our shores from a long way out and reaching out and attacking them as far out as we can. Now, I don't think surface ships have a, bear, have, have a significant role to play in that because they are themselves so vulnerable. But submarines are very important. Aircraft are very important. And that's conventional subs you're talking about, are you? Conventional submarines. Uh, aircraft are very important. Long-range missiles are very important. Sea mines are very important to all of that. And uh, I think it it's, would be perfectly possible for Australia to build a, a, what I call a, a posture of maritime denial, which would significantly enhance our security. Now, n- Co- nothing Costing is, what? Well, my uh, back-of-the-envelope estimate, when I, when I wrote a book about all of this a few years ago, How to Defend Australia, I did a sort of fairly careful back-of-the-envelope cost calculation, which said that instead of the 2% of GDP we're spending at the moment, we'd need to spend between 3 and 3.5% of GDP. Now, that's a lot more, but it's worth bearing in mind that that's what Australia spent, in de- spent on defence in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Now, of course, we do have a choice. Because the alternative for us is to say, look, this is all too hard. It's all too expensive. We think the chances of China or India or Indonesia attacking us are too low. And we should just take the risk. We should accept what I somewhat unkindly call the New Zealand option, which is to just say, look, you know, we're not a kind of a military power. We'll just uh, hope for the best. Now, that's, that, that is an alternative for Australia. And I think it's an alternative we should debate. I don't myself think it's the right answer to the question, but I do think that if we continue to spend the kind of money we're spending at the moment, the way we're spending it at the moment, wasting it on things that I think we don't need, then we will end up being unable to defend ourselves independently. So we'll end up being in New Zealand. We're just one that's spending four times as much as they do on defence. We often finish um, interviews with people like yourself, Hugh, by asking what would you recommend we read um, or listen to to actually sort of equip us more? Uh, when you're lying up at night worrying about all of this, Hugh, what are you reading to help? When you're trying to avoid pessimism. (laughs) Look, I, I, I read history. My Bible is uh, Neville Meany's account of Australian strategic policy at the turn of the last century called The Search for Security in the Southwest Pacific. And I think in the late 19th century, Australian political leaders, people like Alfred Deakin, understood that Britain's position, the great Pax Britannica of the 19th century, was fading away with the rise of all sorts of other powers, Germany and Russia and, of course, Japan. And they really thought deeply and very radically about how Australia should respond to that situation. And they thought things that nobody had thought before, like Australia should federate and become a single country. We're going through an even bigger, much more radical transformation of the Asia we live in, but we're still focusing on a view of our strategic circumstances, which is less sophisticated and less innovative and less courageous and less adventurous than Alfred Deakin or Bob Menzies. And that's not a good outcome. Hugh White, thank you very much. My pleasure. So, Jerry, thoughts? Um, he's alert, I think, to all of us to um, divorce ourselves from a lot of our preconceptions. I suppose that's what I got from Hugh about where we sit in the world um, as Australians, what we've taken for granted how we have to entertain some fresh thoughts. I mean, I noticed this week Paul Keating, our ex-Prime Minister, on his 80th birthday, pleading for us to become a less timid country, which plays right into, I think, what Hugh White was talking about. That you know, it, it goes to that middle power discussion that we had last week too. We, you know, arguably, we think small and we should be thinking, I th- 
well, I agree, but I think we should be thinking a lot bigger, which I think is what Hugh was suggesting. But it's a big leap that we're being asked to make by Hugh White in terms of mentally accepting that if there is a contest between China and the United States, that the United States probably won't win. That's the sort of underlying point that he's asking us to accept. And I think for most of us, that's pretty tough. Yeah, well, look, um, I've heard him make that argument for quite a while. So that doesn't land as quite as quite such a shock. Uh, it's that sense. But to from- realign our entire defence strategy around that notion. That's what he's asking us to do. Well, he's asking us to do what John Curtin had to do in, in 1942, where he had, when the, with the fall of Singapore and the Brits. And that's what I think he, that whole bit about him going back to history, I just couldn't agree with him more. Uh, to to realise that the British Empire wasn't going to defend us in 1942 with the fall of Singapore, that changed everything. And in a way, that's where I think we might be at something similar now with the Americans. I'm not sure. Who knows? But the American military capacity, does still outweigh China's, even though China is engaged in this huge military build-up. I mean, just look at the number of aircraft carriers. You know, the the Americans dwarf the number that the Chinese have. The same with the the destroyers. Significantly more numbers on the American side than the Chinese. Now, the projections are that that's going to shift, that that balance will will tilt and be more even, that that's correct. But I do think it's if you place yourself in the mind of Australia's leaders and whatever flavour, whatever political flavour they are, I mean, you can't really imagine them sitting around in a room saying, let's go and sell to the Australian public a defence strategy that is based around the idea that we accept and acknowledge that if there is a contest uh, in this region between China and America, we expect China to win. And so we're going to work towards that scenario in everything that we decide to build and spend on and uh, and have in terms of our military firepower. I think I don't put it quite like that. I think what Hugh was saying was um, we have to hedge our bets better. I find that an invitation I'm prepared to dwell upon. And I think that um, if you read him, he's got a lot of detail. He's backed up uh, his ideas as to what you could do instead of just whinging. You know, he does more than whinge about the existing situation. And I, I, mean, I, I think it's an invitation that's worth taking up. Well, my recommendation for the week, I don't think will surprise you, Hamish. It is the Oscar-winning documentary Navalny, a glimpse into the 2020 assassination attempt on him, of which, of course, he survived. It wasn't a lot of film festivals, I know, earlier, but I saw it on SBS On Demand, and I think that you can actually still get it on demand. Look... I just sat there stunned, particularly watching it this week, um, four days after I'd heard about his death. It's the fact of what has occurred, but also that here was this man who clearly had made himself unafraid of death and was prepared to leave behind his wife and children. I still find it extraordinary to think about that a man could become so not insouciant, because he didn't want to be a martyr from all that we hear, but that he'd seen death up close and personal and he had stopped being afraid of it. What an extraordinary commentary that is and where it takes us, I have no idea. But 
Oh, I won't forget that for a while. I'll put that on the to-do list for this weekend. Uh, My recommendation is another piece that's in this new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs Journal. That's where the Hugh White piece is published. There's another uh, essay that's written by Uwe Lemahieu, who is from the Lowy Institute. Uh, We talked a lot at the beginning about wanting to consider big ideas, new ideas uh, here in Australia about our place in the world. And Uwe's articulated a position in relation to Australia's foreign policy in the Pacific region with some clear answers to what he thinks we could be doing better. Uh, I won't give it all away. I hope we get him on the program at some point. Uh, But it's worth a read if you are thinking about the way Australia could be carrying its so-called middle power status in the world uh, better. And I might add that that Australian Foreign Affairs magazine actually is available in shops. Like you don't have to to be doing a, a doctorate to actually get it. So you can just go into a decent newsagent if there are still those around. My goodness they are collapsing, have you noticed? Um, And uh, get a good copy. Please keep your feedback coming, global.roaming at abc.net.au. And, of course, if you're listening on any other platform, please give us a star rating, give us a like, or leave a comment and review. We would very much appreciate it. Geraldine, see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.